passage I'm about to take you to, there was part of it that's just kind of been in my spirit the last week or so and felt that it was direction for tonight, but as I reread some of it, it wasn't the direction or it wasn't the part of it that had had my attention. I discovered something that I'm not sure I've ever quite noticed in this passage. I know that I've read it, but it's never quite stood out to me and I guess in some ways this might be a little bit of a part two or a continuation from the message that I preached a couple of weeks ago at the Antioch United service but if you would go to first Kings chapter 18 and verse number 17 and I'll just quickly mention again to you if you've not been in the last uh, if you were not in Thursday night, if you were here this morning, I mentioned it, but we have started something new, at least uh, I am doing it when I minister, and uh, that is making the notes and scriptures available to you for your benefit, for your further reading and reminder in the future. If you uh, can get an app, it's version on um, uh, Apple or Android, it's free. You go on there and go under events, the event will pop up and um, again for further reference in the future if you want the scriptures and things, they're available on there. First Kings 18 verse 17, and it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said unto him, art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house. Here's how you have troubled Israel. You have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. And you have followed Balaam. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal. 450 in the prophets of the grove, 400 which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long will you halt between two opinions? Again, he's talking to the children of Israel. How long will you halt between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. The people answered Him, not a word. How long halt ye between two opinions? This really is the verse that I was thinking of all week, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal, then follow Him. It's not what I'm about to preach, but I just want to pause for a moment to say, I think what he was saying was, get off the fence. Make a choice and make a clear choice. If you're going to serve God, serve God. 
You're going to follow Baal, follow Baal. Rather than trying to do both, go ahead and just do one or the other. But do it. I'm not going to read you the verse yet that I am referring to that I came across. And that's really where my title tonight will make sense once I get to that verse. I want to preach you tonight, captive Christians and crumbling altars. Captive Christians and crumbling altars. Father, thank you for your presence that we have felt in this place. I thank you for what you've already done in this service, the ministry that has taken place, spontaneous ministry, God, that has taken place in this service. I believe that you have already touched hearts and lives. I thank you for that. Now, God, once again, I ask you and trust you that you would minister in this sanctuary tonight through your word, that your spirit would speak, that your word would minister. I ask you and trust you for your anointing tonight, Father, and depend upon you tonight, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated give you a little bit of context. I know most of you are fairly familiar with this passage and this story. But for those that may not be, just a little bit of context. The Bible tells us that there had been, in fact, verse 1 of chapter 18 says, it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, the third year of a drought, the third year of what had turned into a famine. And so the context of the verses I read to you is the conclusion of this three years of drought and God's about to cause it to rain again. And so the next few verses is the encounter of Elijah on his way to the prophet and or to the king and the calling out, if you will, of the king. And the verses that we have read... In verse number 17, again, it says, It came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah. Notice what Ahab says to Elijah. Are you the one that has caused all of this trouble? Are you the one that has caused all of these issues? Are you the source of our problem? That's the same question that gets asked a lot today. Maybe it doesn't actually get verbalized, and maybe you haven't actually thought it in those exact words, but the gist of it, are you the one that's causing all these issues in my world? Are you the one that's causing this trouble? And the prophet replies and says, I, I haven't caused this trouble. Not the reason for this trouble in Israel, but he says, you, your father's house, you are the source of the trouble. You're the source of the trouble because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed Balaam. We're living in a time in which there are fingers being pointed for the condition of our world and we're pointing the fingers in all the wrong places because 
until you've started here and looked here and figured out what's going on here. Stop pointing fingers at somebody else. So Elijah replies and says, I'm not the problem. Really doesn't say this, but I think the gist of what he was saying was, all I have been is simply a messenger for the Lord. I haven't been the one that's caused the issues. I, I haven't been the source of the problem. All I've been is the one that's reported or the one that's brought the message that because of what's gone on, because of the disobedience, that there was going to be some judgment to come. Three years earlier, he shows up and tells the king it's not going to rain. First of all, what human being has the power to tell the rain to stop? But yet, Ahab wants to blame Elijah. Many folks want to blame the preacher. A lot of folks want to point fingers at the preacher. It's the preacher's fault. You did this. You caused this. You know what? I agree in a certain context that preachers have caused some of what's going on in the world today. Because when the pulpit doesn't say... What the pulpit needs to say, when the pulpit's not challenging the morality, there is no human being that has the ability to correct the moral despair of this country. There is no individual that has what it takes. There is no political party. There is no organization that has the ability to turn this country around. There's only one that has that ability, and that is the Almighty God. And if there's anybody on earth that has the ability to help that process, it's the pulpit. And I do agree the pulpit has contributed to a lot of our problem. Because when all preachers want to do is rub backs and tickle ears and create a fan club, then we don't preach most of what needs to be preached. So Elijah says, it's not my fault, it's your fault. You're the one. Choices, decisions that have been made have caused this and the challenge that we read in verse 21. Children of Israel, they've forsaken the one true living God to go after other gods. So let's just go ahead and find out who the real God is. We've got a challenge. We've got a problem in 2016 because most of us, I would imagine probably every individual, at least every adult sitting in this room this evening, if you were to be accused of following other gods, you would be very adamantly opposed. I don't have other gods. I'm not chasing other gods and yet we have priorities and we have things that control our lives and that, that, that dictate the time we spend in certain areas in our, our values and we chase after them. And so really we're not all that different than them. And so Elijah makes the challenge. How long are you going to go back and forth. Let's see if I can let me see if I can put it into kind of 2016 terminology. I'll I'll pick on you young people to kind of bring it close to home. How long are you going to go to 
you know, youth congress or youth camp or church and be one way. But then you get out of church and now you're another way. How long are you going to go back and forth between whether you're going to serve God with everything you got or if you're going to go after other gods? It's what the challenge that Elijah was making was. We're at a point, we need you to make a decision which way you're going to go. And he does something pretty amazing because he offers a challenge. The challenge is not just make up your mind. His challenge wasn't just make a decision. His challenge was let's do something to find out who the real God is. I don't want you just to make a mental ascent, but let's put it to the test. Let's not just debate it. Let's not just talk about it, but let's do something to get undeniable proof who really is God. And so he offers the challenge to the prophets of Baal. And the Bible says they gather together on the top of the mountain. And the prophets of Baal, you can read in verses 22 through 28, you can read what they do. You can read what takes place throughout the day as the prophets of Baal are praying and calling on Baal. And you read throughout there. And if you read, it's really some entertaining reading if you read a few of the other translations of those verses and some of the things that they say that Elijah was saying to the prophets of Baal. Bottom line was really what Elijah was doing was talking some trash. They're praying. They're not only praying, they're cutting themselves. They're causing pain to themselves. And the Bible says that Elijah's off over there on, where's your God? Is he Taking a nap? Is he asleep? Is what's going on? They spend all day doing that and finally reach the point where Elijah basically says, Enough's enough. In verse number 29, it came to pass when midday was passed, and the and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. They had given everything they had to this all-day prayer meeting, calling on Baal to prove that he was God. So Elijah says, you've had your turn. You've had your chance. Enough's enough. And I've always known, or as long as I've known the story, what I've, what I've skipped to from this part is Elijah with the altar and the barrels of water. Calling for them to take what was in, what was, what was a scarce resource and just taking those barrels of water and pouring them on the sacrifice and on the altar. And then Elijah just sort of stepping back. And I, I don't, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I really don't think Elijah got down and went into intercession. In fact, I, I, I almost think that he probably barely even raised his voice. I don't think he screamed to the heavens. I think, I really think he probably just kind of stood back and, 
And, and in 2016 terminology, I think he just kind of stood back and said, Okay, God, do your thing. And the Bible says that fire falls on the altar. The fire consumes the sacrifice. The fire consumes the altar. And the fire consumes all the water that had been poured on the sacrifice. And i got to tell you that most of the time, that's always been my focus. Going from the challenge of how long do you halt between two opinions? How long are you going to go back and forth between what you really believe and what you're really committed to, to the prophets of Baal trying and nothing happening? And then, Elijah, standing there and doing his thing. This is the verse that I noticed a couple of days ago. After the prophets of Baal have done their part, the Bible says that Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. I want you to notice the rest of the verse. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Before the fire fell, before the miraculous demonstration of the power of God, Elijah stopped to repair the altar. Imagine, just, just, if you would, for a moment, imagine what it must have been like at that moment when they recognized what he was doing and then perhaps the pressure of all of these eyes that are looking and waiting to see what you're going to do. But Elijah recognized there's an issue with the altar. And I think what Elijah understood was you can't get to the power with a crumbling altar. You can't jump to the demonstration. You can't jump to the manifestation with an altar that is falling apart. Amongst many other things that concern me, I am concerned that the altar, more so figuratively, but the altar has lost its place in our Christianity. It's lost its significance in our world and we're trying to get to the power. We're trying to get to the manifestation. But we've got altars that are crumbling and falling apart. We don't want to take the time to stop because who wants to stop at the altar? Who wants to spend time at the altar? We just want to get to the power and we want to get to the presence. First, I find the first mention of the altar 
in the Bible to be very interesting because it's found in Genesis 8, verse number 18. And it's found after Noah and his family have spent their time on the ark. The waters of the flood have receded and now they are exiting the ark. And the Bible says in Genesis 8, 18, and Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth, and their kinds went forth out of the ark. And Noah, the first point of business after the ark, Noah built an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done, while the earth remaineth seed time and harvest Cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. I want you to notice that God's promise of never destroying the earth again with water was a response to Noah's building of an altar. God's promise of protection and not doing again what he'd done was in response to what Noah had done. But the thing I find interesting, and I mean this with all sincerity, there are men in this room tonight, and perhaps women too, I say men because there are some that I have conversed with, and so I'm not just saying that generically or generally. There are some men here tonight that have studied a whole lot more, a whole lot more in depth than I, and may have the answer on this. But the interesting thing to me is Noah was not doing something that he had been mandated to do. This was not a response to a commandment. This was not a response to God giving him direction what to do. Somehow, from what I see, there was just something inside of Noah that recognized the need for an altar. And before we go any farther in this new world, before we begin to repopulate this world that was judged and destroyed by God, the first thing we need is an altar. Something needs to die. Blood needs to be shed. I, I don't know. Help me, brethren. I'm, well, I'm willing for you to interrupt my preaching to help me if you have the answer. I don't know anywhere where Noah was told to build an altar and sacrifice. Because it wasn't until God starts to give Moses instruction for the tabernacle that he tells Moses, I want an altar. I want the first thing you encounter to be an altar. I said it two Sunday nights ago and I will touch on it again tonight. But you could not get into the tabernacle and you definitely never got to the presence of God unless you stopped at the altar 
And every time you entered that tabernacle to do the service of the Lord and eventually possibly get to the presence of God, the very first stop was the altar. Something died. Blood was shed. Something was sacrificed. We want to jump to the Holy of Holies and we want to get right into the presence of God, but we don't want it to cost us anything. We don't want to pay a price. We just want the presence. There was an altar that had to be stopped at. I I don't know. I've heard it before and I don't recall exactly, but... My understanding is that altar, when you first came into the tabernacle, was several times larger than the ark, which represented the presence of God. It was no small thing that you just simply bypassed to get to where you were going and what you were doing. Nelson's illustrated Bible dictionary says there were two places of offering. First was the altar a burnt offering. It was placed in front of the entrance to the tabernacle where it was used for the daily burnt offering and meal offering. This altar declared that entry into the presence of God must be preceded by sacrificial atonement for sin. Something's got to die. There's got to be something put on that altar if you're going to get to the presence of God. Today, I want to worship the way I want to worship. I want to live for God based on the parameters and the way that I set it. I want to determine the rules and the guidelines and how I'm going to do it. And I I just want God to accept whatever it is. But that's not the way it worked from the beginning. That's not the pattern God established. God established some things that I expect and I want from you. And I just wonder tonight, if perhaps we're not seeing as much of the power that we want to see because we've got altars that are crumbling. We've got altars that we haven't made sure they're still in place and they're still in order and they still hold a place of significance in our lives. The other altar, it was the altar of incense that stood before the veil inside the tabernacle that separated the most holy place from the rest of the worship area. Priests burned incense on this altar and every day, on this altar every day, so its fragrance would fill the tabernacle when the sacrificial blood was sprinkled on the altar of burnt offering. Apostle Paul says, Romans 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they brought a lamb. In the Old Testament, they brought an offering to put on the altar. Yeah, it cost them something because you weren't supposed to just bring any offering. You know, think about it. God could have simply just said, bring an offering. And not really put any parameters on the offering. And you could have looked around at your sheep and said, you know what, that one's 
is about to die anyway. There's not much life left in it. I think I'll just take that one today. It's not going to last much longer. It's not going to do me much good. So I'll just, I'll take that as my offering. God said, when you bring it, when you bring the lamb, when you bring your offering, bring your best. I wonder how many times our praise and our worship is like that. Let me just see what I can scrounge up, God. Let, let me just see what I can find laying around to give you. Let me just see if I can come up with a little offering of praise and worship tonight. I don't really want to give you what's going to cost me something. I, I don't want to give you what's going to have to cost me. I want to give you my best. I'm willing to give you something. I'm willing to give you something, but I, I just don't know about my best. I mean, God, really, you want me to take my very best lamb, the best that I got, and just put it on an altar? Kill it for what purpose and reason? What do I get out of that? Oh, how we spend so much time trying to bargain with God. Okay, God, I'll give you this, but... I'll let you have this, but what do I get in return? You see, the point of the altar is give what you have and let it go. Lay it there and realize it's not mine anymore. It's now yours. And I'm not going to give you what's crippled. I'm not going to give you what's left over. I'm not going to give you what's fallen apart. But I'm going to bring you the very best that I have. And so the Apostle Paul gives the challenge to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. All of me. All of me. All of me. How is it that I expect to get all of Him for a portion of me? I want the fullness of what you have for me, God, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna skip that altar and we're just gonna head into the presence. going to bypass my offering and blood and the shedding of blood and I, I just want to get to the to the presence can I tell you tonight there's probably just about nobody that needs an answer here that your answer can't be found at the altar There's probably not one person that has any major issue going on in your life that it could not be resolved at the altar. I know we Pentecostals, we use steps and we use platforms for altars and we don't have official altars, but it's always been an altar when it was needed. I don't know about you, but there have been a few times in my life where I knew I needed something and I wasn't getting it. And finally, I made my way to the altar. It wasn't just somebody laying a hand on me and praying for me that did it. 
It wasn't even just the message that gave me what I needed. But I had to make my way to an altar. And I got down on my knees and I made up my mind. I will not leave this altar until something happens. The problem is we want to A-L-T-E-R without an A-L-T-A-R. We want to alter and make some changes, but we don't want to do it at the altar. And I'm not preaching to you tonight just about a service and to try to get you at the conclusion of my message to come down here and kneel down at the altar. Because if the only altar you've got is on Sunday night at the end of a message, that's not enough of an altar. But on Monday morning when you get out of bed, there needs to be an altar that you stop by and say, Today, on Monday, I present myself to you as a living sacrifice I'm not just going to give you Sunday night when I go to church I'm not just going to give you Sunday morning when I go to church but I'm going to give you every single part I'm going to give it and then I'm not going to argue with you about what you do with it imagine what it was like to take something In that day, so precious is one of your lambs and put it on an altar and again, basically see, at least tangibly see, nothing in return. Could it be that one of the reasons why God put the altar at the first thing you encounter is because if everything that needs to die doesn't die from the beginning, there's going to be some trouble Afterwards. So I don't want to stop at the altar and kill some things. I just want to get to the presence while there's still a lot still living in me. Somehow, I believe we need it collectively. But just as much individually. I wonder what would change in our lives if our crumbling altars were put back together. See, they, they weren't, at least my understanding, I haven't used the term captive in their context, that they were in captivity. They weren't in captivity to an opposing army, but they were in captivity to their wills. They were in captivity to their flesh. Their flesh that wanted the best of both worlds. I'm I'm sorry without being sorry tonight. I'm sorry because my flesh would much rather preach a lot of other things But I'm not apologizing for what I'm preaching. My flesh wants to preach something else, but I'm I'm not apologizing for what I am preaching. I I I maybe it's maybe I'm saying the same thing I've said a couple of weeks ago and even other times, but I am greatly concerned that we are trying to confront an enemy who is bringing everything he can against us as half-hearted. 
passive, part-time soldiers. An enemy who is ramping up his attack and opposition. And we want to sit around and argue and debate about petty things that should have been put on an altar a long time ago. Things that should have died a long time ago. The problem was we somehow snuck in and bypassed the altar. We, we, we have this, we have this, this blessing and this curse. When Jesus was crucified, when he died, the Bible says the veil of the temple was torn. That means to me, the barrier that had previously existed between the altar and the presence was now gone so that there was free access to the presence. The place where only one person previously could go now becomes available to all. But I think the thing that we missed in the process was that when the veil was torn to provide access, the pattern to get to the presence didn't change. Just because the obstacles to the presence were removed did not mean God was throwing out the pattern. I wonder if he just thought it was a given that now that we had access to the presence, we would still understand before I ever get to the presence, I need to stop by the altar and I need to lay some things on the altar and I need to pour some things out. I need to get rid of some things. I need to let go of some things because if I am really going to experience everything He has for me in His presence. I've got to deal with this first. We get to the presence and we don't stop at the altar and so we experience the presence but then we get away from the presence and now we're still torn with what should have been put on an altar. We find ourselves in this battle between things that are pulling on our spirit man and our fleshly man because we didn't stop at the altar and say, I present everything that I've got as a living sacrifice. I just, I just want the, I just want to, I just need a couple of goosebumps. Our problem is we've equated an experience or a feeling with God's validation and approval. If I can come to church and feel something, then that means I'm okay. I'm going to tell you something. You better not bank on the fact that a few hairs standing on the back of your neck and a few goosebumps is the presence of God. You might just happen to have been a little bit sweaty and the AC turned on and caught you just right. 
I'm not really trying to be stupid right now. The feeling of the presence of God was never intended to be validation of my condition. The state of my walk with God. We've reached a place where if I can just feel the presence, that means I'm okay. No. No, I just, I have access now. If I'm not careful, I can let my altar fall apart because I just want to jump to the presence. I, I, I don't really want to do this, but I found some good stuff in my study, so if you'll bear with me, I'm going to read for a few moments here. This is from the biblical illustrator. It says this with regards to the significance of broken altars. That is a simple line from an old chronicle, but it is the present root of many a pathetic human tragedy. The broken altar is the root of many a pathetic human tragedy. It sets out in terms of quite harmless simplicity and apparently incidental fact. Really it unveils the spring of the nation's calamity and reveals the source of her uttermost disaster. I know our presidential candidates would probably not give me the time of day and if they stopped long enough to listen to me they would probably scoff at me but the issue we've got is broken altars. Issue of our nation is broken altars. It used to be that Sunday was sacred. It used to be that the mall closed on Sunday. It used to be that Little League and other community league sports did not play on Sunday because society, not Christians, but society recognized that Sunday was the The world viewed Sunday as the Lord's day. And now we got all kinds of stuff that goes on on Sunday. God bless Chick-fil-A. Somebody that recognizes it's still the Lord's day. Because you can do just about anything you want to do on a Sunday now. You can shop. You can do whatever you want to do because we have creeped in on the Lord's Day. Brother Ryder, you know, I'm not saying it's only the Lord's Day and that's the only day. But you know what? We did a little bit better when society was respectful of the fact that Sunday ran into some of our neighbors a couple of weeks ago at Pot bellies after church, and we were all dressed up. And where have y'all been? Church. Oh, yeah, that's right. I don't know how many of you have experienced, but I've had it numerous times going out Sunday night after church. What are you all dressed up for? Dressed up for what I thought you did on a Sunday. I didn't say dressed up for what I thought you dressed up for. Notice that. So dress however you want to dress. The root of what we face is broken altars. 
Famine is everywhere. What is the root of this menacing peril? What the cause of this desolating misfortune? The whole answer lies in the broken altar. That little heap of indistinguishable rubbish, those few overturned stones, that desolated shrine, these are the central fact, the key to the situation, the pivot upon which the whole thing turns. You want to fix racism in the United States of America? Go to the altar! Go to the altar! And don't get up from the altar until you've laid aside every prejudice and every wrong attitude. And then let the blood of Jesus Christ wash you and cleanse you and make you whole. You want to fix the crime rate? Go to the altar. You want to fix relationships and marriages that are falling apart? Go to the altar. You want families to be put back together? Go to the altar. And put it all on the altar. Everything I am, everything I'm not, everything I should do, everything I shouldn't do, put it all on the altar. A little heap of indistinguishable rubbish, those few overturned stones that desolated shrine. These are the central fact, the key to the situation, the pivot upon which the whole thing turns. Life is crammed with rich and fruitful symbols, and those few stones lying in unregarded confusion are the symbol of a forgotten God. They seem so unimportant, but they are the pathetic mementos of dead worships. Forgotten loyalties, quenched visions, faded raptures, and lifeless loves. That is life's most arrestive tragedy. To have known God and to have been intimate with the eternal. And to have seen the vision splendid fade into the light of common day. And the divinity of heaven degraded into a powerless commonplace. I preach to people in this place tonight. You've grown lukewarm. And the reason you've grown lukewarm is you used to spend time at the altar. You used to pour your heart out to God at the altar. But when's the last time you went to the altar And made up your mind. I'm not going to leave this altar. Until I know something has happened. You've gone to the altar. And like Jacob you have said. I'm not going to let go. Until you bless me. I'm not going to let go. Until you change me. It's a whole lot easier to sit and point fingers. At who's done what. And who's fault. and, And who messed up. And who said what. And did what that they shouldn't. That's a whole lot easier than just going to the altar and making up my mind, God, it doesn't really matter what they did. It doesn't matter what they said. It doesn't matter how they treated me. If I can just get it right between you and me at this altar, nothing else is really going to matter if I can just let it go at the altar. And that soon runs out. Neglecting of the altar soon runs out 
into every part of our complex lives and touches each least thing with its paralyzing and and degrading hand. These two things are inexorably fastened together. Famine in the land is the certain consequence of spiritual disloyalty and cowardice. When the soul becomes materialized, its visions are quenched, its raptures die, disintegration inevitably sets in, the descent is begun, which unless it is arrested, can have but one, and that no uncertain end. When I start to get cold in my spirit, when I start to get frustrated over what God is asking and expecting of me, when I start to get pulled on by the things of this world, when I start to get distracted by worldly things, if I could just somehow make my way to the altar and stay at the altar, something will change, something will happen. And when I get up and walk away, everything that's been pulling on me and everything that's been distracting me I can leave it at the altar and leave different life loses its high incentives the breath of its most spacious inspiration perishes the spell of its holiest attractions is broken bit by bit the glory vanishes from the sky and quenched stars presage the uttermost dark and this is no capricious law which one but once only worked itself out to its awful issue and smote them that disregarded the sanctities with the desolation of devastating famine. Broken altar. It's a broken down altar. It's a broken down altar. I'm sorry you can boil it down to a broken down altar. If I could just get back to the altar if I could just pour it out at the altar when I start to lose my vision when I start to lose my passion when I start to lose my faith because of everything that's going on around me if I can just get back to the altar and spend some time at the altar the problem is stuff starts pulling on us and distractions start happening and we do everything but go to the altar we go talk to people We go get counseling. We go try to get somebody to give us guidance. We go get somebody that will tell us what we want to hear. When the one thing we need that's the solution and the answer to it all is just go back to the altar. Find out where it's crumbling and breaking apart in your life and put it back together. Reassemble it. Don't just reassemble it as a shrine, as a monument, as a memento, but Put it back into practice. Bear with me, if you would, for a few more moments. It says, with regards to the repairing the altar of the Lord, He is the real helper and healer of the people who can put His finger upon the root of their sorrow. If you're engrossed in politics, if you're caught up in politics and what's going on, that is totally your right. That is your right as a citizen. That is your right as being a part of this country. But I gotta tell you, I, I, I just, I, I, without, I, I just every now and then just try to get a little idea of what's going on. Other than that, I, I don't want anything to do with it because everybody's sitting around and rehashing all of the symptoms. 
You listen to them at the Republican National Convention and everybody's bashing the symptoms. And you listen to the DNC and it's all about the symptoms. Nobody's getting to the root because without God and without an altar, all you can really do is just identify the symptoms. If you're going to fix it, you got to get to the altar. I'm sorry, I shouldn't go here because I don't mean it to be political and some of you are going to take it that way. You've already seen, I posted it on Facebook if you've seen it, but I heard as a preacher, a preacher said, The Democratic nominee was the hope for helping our moral values, that she encompassed our deepest moral values. When you promote abortion, you don't encompass my deepest moral values. When you promote same-sex marriage, you do not encompass my deepest moral values. And what, what, what scares me is not a potential president that may believe those things. What scares me is a preacher who will say, that is our hope. That's what scares me. I'm used to all the other, but for a preacher to say, that's our hope. No, 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 no. Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever you are, here is our hope. Somebody has got to get back to an altar. Somebody's got to repair an altar. He is the real helper and healer of the people who can put his finger on the root of their sorrow, who discovers the cause of their calamity and defeat. It is little good to peddle about the circumference, to remedy this evil, to heal this wound, to satisfy this hunger. All these are but varied forms of a sovereign defect to find and to heal, which is the supreme necessity. Things must be seen in their proper perspective and dealt with in their imperative sequence before good can be established and welfare made secure. We want to skip ahead of the altar and then, and then let's just, let's just go to where we're really at. I wish it was just about the altar, but we got a world that now wants to completely push God to the side. We don't need you, God. You can't fix us. You can't help us. So we want to push you to the side and we're going to do it all ourselves. And we wonder how we got here. Why trouble about the altar now? Submit the final issue, decide the great question, then build the altar to the uncertain God. With a sure instinct, He touched the secret of the nation's sorrows. That tiny heap of broken stones is the root of all its disasters. Before I call fire down from heaven, Before God proves what He can do, we've got to stop and fix what is broken. Because if we don't fix what is broken, God may do what He's going to do anyway. But if we don't get this fixed, it's only a matter of time that we're right back at the same place. So before fire falls and before God consumes the sacrifice, let's make sure the altar is repaired.
There's much more good stuff. I don't know if Brother Stewart was able to get all of it in the notes for the app, so you can read the rest of it later. I skip ahead to a couple more verses, and I close. Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 9, just another example. But Manasseh, Manasseh was one of the kings, made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen. Somebody that knows better made them to do worse than the heathen made them do. Whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. Wherefore the Lord brought upon them captains of the host of king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. These were Christians that had become captive. Figuratively, these were Christians who had become captive. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him. And he was entreated of him and he heard his supplication. And he brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Now after this, he built a wall without the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley and even to the entering in at the fish gate and compassed about awful and raised it up a very great height and put captains of war in all the fenced cities of Judah. But he didn't stop there. He took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord. They, they got to the point that there were idols in the house of God. They weren't just going after idols and other gods. They reached the point that they had brought idols into So he took away the strange gods and the idols out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of the Lord. There were other altars that he had been sacrificing. Why do you sacrifice at the God of pleasure who can give you nothing? In return. Why sacrifice at the altar of the God of a career that at some point in time the career is going to end? Why sacrifice at the altar of a spouse or the altar of a parent or the altar of a child who at some point is going to fail you and let you down? Why put everything on the altar for something that's temporal but apparently they had made some altars just for the wrong thing? But he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. We've strayed, we've wandered, we've allowed things in, we've done things we shouldn't do. We've gotten caught up in things we shouldn't be caught up in. But the answer is to fix the altar. The answer is to repair. 2016, an altar is not popular. 2016, an altar is not appealing. When we're talking about everybody getting equal rights and everybody doing what they want to do and living how they want to live and being whatever they profess to be, an altar is not very appealing. And as I close tonight, I challenge you, 
living in a world that has created all kinds of altars. Will you make sure that the altar of the Lord is not broken down in your life? It's not falling apart and you're not bypassing it. But will you make sure that if it needs repair, you will repair the altar? And once you've repaired the altar, it's going to become a part of your daily life. Not going to be something I ignore and bypass because I just want to get to the feeling of the presence, get a little goosebumps and go on about my way. But I'm willing to let some things die. I'm willing for some things to be sacrificed. I'm willing for there to be a change. If you'd bow your head and close your eyes, please. I've already said it, but I'm going to say it in closing. I'm not preaching to you tonight. This is not all about one simple single altar call that I am about to give. It's not about that. Because if all there is is one visit to the altar, if all you do is just stop here tonight, but you don't do it again tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, it may do you a little bit of good tonight. But if there's not an altar that's been repaired, that's being used in your life, you're going to find yourself back at the same place. I invite somebody right now to come and repair if it needs to be repaired the altar in your life to come and make a fresh dedication and commitment God I'm not going to let the altar in my life be in disrepair I'm not going to let the altar in my life fall apart and crumble I'm not going to skip past the altar and just get to the presence. I'm not going to find a way to go around the altar and just get to the place where I want to be. But I'm going to stop. I'm going to lay some things down. I'm going to let some things go. And ultimately, God, what I'm going to lay down is going to be me. Ultimately, what I'm going to put on that altar is going to be myself as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto you as my reasonable service. It's not something unfair that you're asking. It's not something unreasonable that you want of me, God. In light of all that you've done for me, in light of all that you will do for me, it's my reasonable service. It's my reasonable service to put what I have on the altar. It's my reasonable service, God, to lay down everything that I've got, everything that I treasure, everything that is dear to me, God, and lay it on the altar it's not too much to ask it's not unreasonable it's my reasonable service help us tonight God in a world of crumbling altars in a world of abandoned altars in a world of neglected altars God I pray that you would help us tonight 
to repair, to rebuild the altars in our lives. That place of dedication, that place of commitment, that place of sacrifice, that place, God, pouring out everything that I've got, holding nothing back, keeping nothing in reserve. I'm not just going to give you those parts, God, that don't really cost me anything. I'm not going to just give you those areas, God, that really aren't that valuable or that I can do without, but God, the very precious, the most precious things to me, God, the things that I value the most, the things that are the dearest to me, God, I want to lay them on the altar. I want to release them at the altar. I want to let them go for you to do with them as you desire. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. God, whatever issues we may be facing as a church, whatever issues there may be amongst us as a body, God, it's nothing that can't be resolved at the altar. Whatever divisions there may be amongst us, whatever schisms the enemy may be trying to put in the body, it's nothing, God. It can't be resolved at an altar. It's nothing that can't be worked out at an altar. But it can't be a neglected altar. It can't be a crumbling, falling apart altar. Help us, help us, help us, Holy Ghost. Help us, Holy Ghost. Help us, Holy Ghost. I want to put my all on the altar. I don't want to just expect your all, but I want to put my all on the altar. I don't want to try to live a walk with you, a life with you that avoids, that bypasses the altar. I want it to have that place in my life that it must have. I want it to hold that place in my life that it must hold. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. New commitment. I want to find a fresh start. My new commitment happens at the altar. My fresh start happens at the altar. It's not in the holiest of holies. It's not in the holy place. But before I ever get there, I need to put what I have on the altar. Before I ever get to my encounter with you, I need to stop at the altar. Take me back. Take me back to that old landmark. There I'll make a new oh yes, a new commitment. Give me a fresh start at the altar, God. Give me a fresh start at the altar. Give me a fresh start at the altar.
Directions at the altar. My direction, God, is at the altar. Help me to get my direction from the altar. Don't let me get my direction from my peers. Don't let me get my direction from a world that surrounds me. God, let me get my direction from the altar. Let me get my values at the altar. Let me get my morals at the altar. Let me get my convictions at the altar. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Please be mindful of those that are praying, but whenever you're done and choose to go, you're welcome to do so.